Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Divine Fingerprint by Pastor Sean Wood. Father, this morning as we assemble before you, Lord, we are in danger of having our eyes closed and our ears closed, and we ask right now that you would open our eyes and open our ears. Lord, I pray that you would allow each and every one of us to hear you speaking to us this morning in your wonderful name. Amen. Okay, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles, uh, meet me at Genesis 37. We will be jotting our way through the, uh, Genesis 37 and about two other chapters as we work our way through. Today I want to speak about the fingerprints of God and I want, to, I want to share a story with you that some people here would have heard and I didn't want to get any of the details wrong so I printed it off and I want to read it out to you. This is a beautiful story. If you were listening to 96.5 this week you, would have, you possibly would have heard this story but it's a story about a guy by the name of Marcel Sternberger Another guy by the name of uh, Bella Paskin and his wife Maria. This is a beautiful story. Marcel Sternberger was a methodical man of nearly 50, with bushy white hair, guileless brown eyes, and the bouncing enthusiasm of Azad's dancer of his native Hungary. He always took the 909 Long Island Railroad train from his suburban home to Woodside, New York, where he caught a subway into the city. But on the morning of January 10th, 1948, Sternberger boarded the 909 as usual. En route, he suddenly decided to visit Laszlo Victor, a Hungarian friend who lived in Brooklyn and was ill. Accordingly, at Ozone Park, Sternberger changed to the subway for Brooklyn, went to his friend's house and stayed until mid-afternoon. He then boarded a Manhattan-bound subway for his Fifth Avenue office. Here is Marcel's incredible story. The car was crowded and there seemed to be no chance of a seat. But just as I entered, a man sitting by the door suddenly jumped up to leave and I slipped into the empty place. I've been living in New York long enough not to start conversations with strangers. But being a photographer, I have the peculiar habit of analysing people's faces. And I was struck by the features of the passenger on my left. He was probably in his late 30s, and when he glanced up, his eyes seemed to have a hurt expression in them. He was reading a Hungarian language newspaper, and something prompted me to say in Hungarian, I hope you don't mind if I glance at your paper. The man seemed surprised to be addressed in his native language, but he answered politely, you may read it now, I'll have time later on. During the half hour ride to town, we had quite a conversation. He said his name was Bella Paskin, a law student when World War II had started. He had been put into a German labour battalion and sent to the Ukraine. Later, uh, sent to the Ukraine. Later, he was captured by the Russians and put to work burying the German dead. After the war, he covered hundreds of miles on foot until he reached his home in Debrecen, a large city in eastern Hungary. I myself knew Debrecen quite well, and we talked about it for a while. Then he told me the rest of the story. When he went to the apartment, once occupied by his father, mother, brothers and sisters, he found strangers living there. Then he went upstairs to the apartment that he and his wife once had. It also was occupied by strangers. None of them had ever heard of his family. As he was leaving, full of sadness, a boy ran after him calling, Paskin, Paskin, that means Uncle Paskin. The the child was the son of some old neighbours of his. He went to the boy's home and talked to his parents. Your whole family is dead. 
they told him. The Nazis took them and your wife to Auschwitz. Auschwitz was one of the worst Nazi concentration camps. Paskin gave up all hope. A few days later, too heartsick to remain any longer in Hungary, he set out again on foot, stealing across border after border until he reached Paris. He managed to immigrate to the United States in October of 1947, just three months before I met him. All the time he had been talking, I kept thinking that somehow his story seemed familiar. A young woman whom I had met recently at the home of friends had also been from Debrecen. She had had been sent to Auschwitz. From there, she had been transferred to work in a German munitions factory. Her relatives had been killed in the gas chambers. Later, she was liberated by the Americans and was brought here in the first boatload of displaced persons in 1946. Later, she was liberated by the Americans and was brought here in the first boatload of displaced persons in 1946. Her story had moved me so much that I had written down her address and phone number, intending to invite her to meet my family and thus help relieve the terrible emptiness in her life. It seemed impossible that there could be any connection between these two people. But as I neared my station, I fumbled anxiously in my address book. I asked in what I hoped was a casual voice, was your wife's name Maria? He turned pale. Yes, he answered. How did you know? He looked as if he were about to faint. I said, let's get off the train. I took him by the arm at the next station and led him to a phone booth. He stood there like a man in a trance while I dialed her phone number. It seemed hours before Maria Paskin answered. And later I learned her room was alongside the telephone, but she was in the habit of never answering it because she had so few friends and the calls were always for someone else. But at this particular time, however, there was no one else at home. And after letting it ring for a while, she responded. When I heard her voice at last, I told her who I was and asked her to describe her husband. She seemed surprised at the question, but gave me a description. Then I asked her where she had lived in Debrecen, and she told me the address. Asking her to hold the line, I turned to Paskin and said, Did you and your wife live on such and such a street? Yes, Bella exclaimed. He was as white as a sheet and trembling. Try to be calm, I urged him. Something miraculous is about to happen to you. Here, take this telephone and talk to your wife. He nodded his head in mute bewilderment. His eyes bright with tears. He took the receiver. He listened a moment to his wife's voice and then suddenly cried, this is Bella, this is Bella. And he began to mumble hysterically. Seeing that poor fellow was so excited, he couldn't couldn't talk coherently. I took the receiver from his shaking hands. Stay where you are, I told Maria, who also sounded hysterical. I'm sending your husband to you. We will be there in a few minutes. Bella was crying like a baby and saying over and over again, it is my wife. I go to my wife. At first I thought I had better accompany Paskin lest the man should faint from excitement. But I decided that this was a moment in which no stranger should intrude. Putting Paskin into a taxi cab, I directed the driver to take him to Maria's address, paid the fare and said goodbye. Bella Paskin's reunion with his wife was a moment so poignant, so electric with suddenly released emotion, that afterward neither he nor Maria could recall much about it. 
I remember only that when I left the phone, I walked to the mirror like in a dream to see if maybe my hair had turned grey, she, she said later. The next thing I know, a taxi stops in front of the house and it is my husband who comes towards me. Details I cannot remember, only this I know, that I was happy for the first time in many years. Even now, it is difficult to believe that it happened. We have, we have both suffered so much, I have almost lost the capability to not be afraid. Each time my husband goes from the house, I say to myself, will anything happen to take him from me again? Her husband is confident that no horrible misfortune will ever again befall. The providence has brought us together, he says simply. It was meant to be. Skeptical persons will no doubt attribute these, the events of that memorable afternoon to mere chance. But was it chance that made Marcel Sternberger suddenly decide to visit his sick friend and hence take a subway line that he had never ridden before? Was it chance that caused the man sitting by the door of the car to rush out just as Sternberger came in? And was it chance that caused Bella Paskin to be sitting beside Sternberger reading a Hungarian newspaper? Was it chance, my friends, or did God ride the Brooklyn subway that day? What a beautiful story. I first heard that story uh, recited by a man by the name of Ravi Zacharias. But what a beautiful, beautiful story it is. And if Bella Paskin, I'm sure if we could speak to Bella Paskin right now, he would say, my life is dotted and littered with the fingerprints of God. That's just one example. I have to confess I'm a forensic science nut. I I am amazed how, uh, unless you're a criminal, of course, but I'm amazed how uh, detectives can walk onto a scene and by what is left behind, they're able to piece together what has happened. I think if we're honest with ourselves and if we look back over our lives, each and every single one of us have the fingerprints of God in our lives. We have trace evidence that God has intervened in our lives. We have trace evidence that God has intersected our lives. I want to talk to you about a young Hebrew boy today whose life was intersected by God at certain random points in his life. This boy definitely had the fingerprints of God on his life. My testimony, my personal testimony, as I look back, is one where I can see, even in the most adverse circumstances, God, your fingerprints were all over me, leading me and guiding me. Uh, I love the words of Timothy Keller, and if you're here tonight, we're going to talk about Psalms 23 and the Lord is my shepherd, but I love the words of Timothy Keller when he says, you know what, guidance is not necessarily something God gives It's more something God does. And as our lives are guided by him, we all bear the fingerprints of somebody who has in fact steered us all back to himself. I believe in the fingerprints of God. If you're with me in Genesis chapter 37, you will be uh, at uh, the story of a young Hebrew boy by the name of Joseph. Most of us here have heard the story of Joseph and his technicolored dream coat, but It's a little bit more fanciful than that. Uh, See, Joseph, when we meet Joseph in Genesis 37, in the first few verses, you will begin to see that he's 17 years of old. Uh, And if we can draw any lessons from the life of Joseph, some of them are this. Uh, Be careful about favouring your children, Jacob, because we see that he singles Joseph out and he he shows special favour. That's what uh, the Bible tells us, that he shows special favour to Joseph. But it's interesting. He's, He's the 11th child of 12 children. He 
He is the son of Israel or Jacob, who is the beginning of the nation of Israel. And we all know Joseph because Joseph has two dreams. And in those two dreams, both of them display, the first one displays that he's out uh, bringing in the, the sheaves and harvesting the wheat and his sheaf rises above all the others, which is a picture of him rising in prominence above his brothers. And, and later on, he dreams that he, he, he rises above the sun, the moon and the stars. If you're into prophetic literature, if you're reading the book of Revelations and you come across the fact that the, that the moon was darkened and the sun did not give its light, it's not a physical reference, it's a reference to those who hold to the, the fatherhood of the nation of Israel. It's a, it's a message for another time. And Jacob rebukes him because you are now saying that you will rise in prominence above us. And I don't want to be out anybody else. I actually don't enjoy doing jigsaw puzzles. Why? Because when you get the jigsaw puzzle box, it's kind of like our life where God gives us a dream and he hands us the jigsaw puzzle box and on the front is a picture. And the picture looks lovely and as long as it's not a picture of a cat. Does anybody here like cats? <laughs> you need to stand guard, Antonio. <laughs> but... We get a picture on a jigsaw puzzle box, but when we open the box, there's a heap of random pieces there. And who knows that as you're putting the pieces together, you're kind of wondering, how do these pieces all come together to make that picture on the front of the box? And as we look at the life of Joseph, he was given a picture just like that from God. God has already sown a dream and a picture in his heart. But when he opens the box of his life over the next 13 years... We're going to see he's trying to put the pieces together and it's not until the end that he puts all the pieces together and goes, now I get it. And there's people in this room this morning and God has given you that jigsaw box. And your life right now probably doesn't look like anything like the picture you were given however many years ago. And if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you as we work our way through the story of Joseph that it may seem like you're a million miles away from God, but as it turns out, we may just be right where God wants us. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Second uh, Kings chapter 6 and the, and the story of Elisha. And Elisha, uh, there's an amazing event that transpires at a, at a place called Dothan. And I love Dothan because we only read of it twice in the Old Testament and we get two enormously contrasting pictures. You see, Joseph goes, you can read the scriptures for yourself later, but Joseph goes looking for his brothers who are herding sheep and he meets this uh, man and the man he says, I'm looking for my brothers that are herding sheep. And he says, well, you know what? I heard them say they were going to a place called Dothan. And that's where Joseph meets his brothers. Joseph meets his brothers at a little place called Dothan and the only other time we read about Dothan is in 2 Kings chapter 6 and in both times we have somebody crying out to God. You see, Elisha cries out to God, open the eyes of my servant and he automatically sees not just the Syrian army but he sees them surrounded by the army of God. It was always there. I don't know who preached that message, but it was a good message, 2 Kings chapter 6, if you were here a couple of weeks ago. But if we rewind the tape 
to many years before Elisha was even born, there's a little Hebrew boy that's going to find himself in, the, in the, exactly the same physical location. And he's also going to be crying out to God. And he's going to be at the bottom of the pit. And it just so turns out, as we work our way through the story of both of these men, Elisha and uh, Joseph, that both of them were right where God wanted them. And when one prays, God sweeps in in an instant and saves Elisha and his servant. And when the little Hebrew boy prays at the bottom of a pit, it seems like God's, it's bouncing on brass ears and God's not listening. I don't know about anybody else in this room, but I've experienced times like that in my life when I feel like the heavens are like brass and all of my prayers are bouncing back and nobody's hearing me. It doesn't matter how many times I pray. It doesn't matter how many times I ask God to take this thing away from me. It still keeps on. God, I'm in a pit. But it's right here at Dothan that we begin to see the first fingerprint. Verse 18, it says that they saw him from afar, which is his brothers. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Uh, Lesson number one, if God's giving you a dream, be careful who you tell. Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. Verse 21. If you ever get the opportunity to read the Bible from cover to cover, and I encourage everybody to do that, you're going to, come, you're going to begin to fall in love with one word. It's the word but. There's some enormously horrendous circumstances, but there's some beautiful buts. Verse 21, but when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. They would have taken Joseph's life. They would have killed Joseph right there. And then my son's not here at the moment, but Reuben, you're supposed to be looking after your younger brothers, but he'll get that one later. I'll let him know about that one later. But Reuben steps in and all of a sudden we see Joseph should have been killed. Joseph should have uh, fallen into the hands of his brothers, but Reuben steps in bit of a bold move. They may have chucked Reuben into the pit as well. This is a bold move by Reuben. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into the into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colours that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Verse 25. As you work your way through the story of Joseph, you can almost hear the words, it just so happened. And here we find a a little Hebrew boy at the bottom of a pit. All of his brothers want to kill him. And already, you know what? They've gone too far. It's not like they can pull him up out of the pit and go, oh, no, we're just joking. Come on home. He's going to tell dad. When they get back, if dad finds out what these guys were going to do, if, they, if dad finds out they put him in the bottom of a pit, they've gone too far. What are we going to do with this guy? We, we, we can't leave him here in the bottom of a pit because he's going to die. And it just so happened that when they were trying to work out what they were going to do, some Ishmaelite traders come along. And, and they take him up and they, they pass him off to the Midianites. And it's a very important thing we need to note before we get to the end is he was sold sold for 20 pieces of silver into Egypt. They sold Joseph into Egypt. 
for 26 shekels of silver, just when there was no other options. We now work our way to chapter 39. We skip the whole Judah and Tamar thing. That's a message for another time. But now we find Joseph has been sold into Egypt. And it just so happens uh, when they were debating what to do, he, he sells into Egypt and he finds his way into the house of Potiphar, the captain of the guards. And uh, we need to stop for a moment and just have a look here. Joseph has been unjustly treated by his brothers. He is now sold for a, a mere 20 pieces of silver. Imagine taking that back to your dad and trying to explain where you got that from. But apart from that, he now finds himself hundreds of miles away from his family. He's the only Hebrew in Egypt. Uh, slavery was not a a profession you kind of aspire to. In these times, being a slave was not something that was to be looked for. But he was sold into Egypt, into Potiphar's house, and if there is one sentence that sums up the testimony of Joseph, it is this, but the Lord was with him. How's that picture on the front of the jigsaw box looking now, Joseph? You're going to rise above prominence? Above your brothers, above your father? How does that look now? You're nowhere near them. You have no hope of ever seeing them again. How's that dream God's put in your heart now? I want to encourage every single person in this room. You may feel like you're a million miles away from God, but the Lord is with you. A.W. Tozer highlights beautifully that there is no place in the heavens, below the earth or on the earth, that you can go to escape the presence of God. God's presence is in this room right here, right now. My prayer is that just like that little servant boy from Elisha, that he would increasingly open our eyes to the reality of his presence surrounding us. Joseph, whether you're in the bottom of a pit, whether you're in Egypt, it doesn't matter where you are, my friend, the Lord is with you. So the Lord was with Joseph. That is the testimony of his life. But we know how the story goes. He's working away in Potiphar's house and uh, Potiphar goes away and Potiphar's wife takes a bit of a shining to the young Hebrew boy. And she tries to seduce Joseph. And let's just fast forward Joseph back into our times now. And who, if you were Joseph, who wouldn't be standing there going, you know what, everything that's happened to me, I deserve a little bit of something, you know. And here I am all the way in Egypt. Uh, you know what, the response of Joseph is not, uh, how could I possibly do this to Potiphar? That's not his response. Joseph doesn't respond to Potiphar's wife and say, how could I possibly do this and bring shame upon my, my nation or my, or my father or my family? How could... No, 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 no. We see something very beautiful in the heart of Joseph. His response is, how could I possibly do this and offend God? We actually see a little Hebrew boy that shows us exactly what it's like to fear God. I love the analogy that uh, Tim Keller gives when he's saying uh, the fear of God is not being afraid of God. It's holding him in reverence. It's when, it's when God rises to the number one place. You see, when Joseph, when Joseph is confronted with committing sin, the first person he thinks of is God. I couldn't possibly do that and offend God. 
And Timothy Keller says, you know what? He says, if I gave you an old earthen pot and asked you to take it down 16 flights of stairs from a hotel to the lobby and give it to the person at the reception desk, you'd throw it on your shoulder, you'd run down the stairs, you'd slap it up on the desk and go, bonza, and walk away. He says, but if I gave you a very, very rare vase from some uh, long lost Chinese dynasty and I told you that this vase was priceless, and that she actually couldn't put a value on this vase, and that I wanted you to take it down 16 flights of stairs to the lobby, uh, all of a sudden, Tim Keller says, you would walk very, very deliberately. You would walk very, very slowly. Why? You're not afraid of what the vase is going to do to you. You're afraid of what you might do to the vase. That's what the fear of God is. It's when we conduct our lives in such a posture where we wouldn't dare do anything in case we may offend God. He remains number one. He's like that rare vase. And even though we see Joseph uh, placed into prison, he is falsely accused, we know, by Potiphar's wife, and he's placed in prison. Things just keep going from bad to worse. Anybody ever had days like that? Anybody ever had months like that? Anybody ever had years where things just seem to be going from bad to worse and you can't win a trick? Does that mean God hates you? It would appear as though that is not what it means at all. So he gets thrown into prison. We see verse 19, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. And we read again, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favour in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And whatever he did, the Lord made it to succeed. So he's been placed into prison. And Joseph, uh, we find that Joseph is in prison. And although he is alone, he's not lonely because the Lord is with him. Can I tell you that Egyptian prisons, Google uh, conditions in an Egyptian prison, it wasn't pleasant. We're going to see that when he's brought before Pharaoh, they have to scrub this guy clean just so he can come into the presence of Pharaoh. These guys were not treated well in prison. We might be sitting here this morning thinking we're a million miles away from God. Give this guy a second thought. How's that jigsaw puzzle looking now, Joseph? But as we actually are beginning to see, and we will see by the time we get to the end of it, these are all the fingerprints of God. Uh, You're exactly where God wants you, Joseph. You're in the prison, yes. You're undergoing some hardship and some affliction, yes. But you're right where I want you. We come to uh, chapter 40, it just so happens that the the butcher, the baker and the candlestick maker, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt find their way, it just so happens that they find their way into the prison with Joseph. And you can read verse 40 for yourself later on, but uh, these guys, it just so happens... We keep saying those words, don't we? It just so happens. It just so happens. It just so happens that the cupbearer and the baker both have a dream and they're very troubled by these dreams. And Pharaoh's going to have a dream uh, in the coming chapters, but there's, there's something we need to know about dreams. Back in the patriarchal times, back in ancient times, uh, it was the number one way that God spoke to anybody. Uh, as time progressed, God had prophets, yes, beginning mostly with Moses, where God would bring a word to the prophet and the prophet would bring a word to the people, yes. 
But in ancient times, when God wanted to speak and to communicate to somebody, he did so by dreams. Uh, Muslims today, they believe that the only way that God can speak to anybody is by dreams because God doesn't speak directly to men. That's what they believe. And so God meets them right where they're at. And uh, today, right now today, do you know that hundreds of Muslims are having dreams of a person by the name of Jesus Christ? The testimony of one of them to Ravi Zacharias was, he said, I dreamt every night about this Jesus Christ. My my mum put me on a plane and sent me out of Iran because my dad and my brother were going to kill me. And and I dreamed this dream even while I was here in the United States. I had a dream of Jesus every single night. He said, and then I walked into a church and said, what is with this Jesus? And he gave his life to Christ in a miraculous way. And uh, Ravi Zacharias said, wow. He said, what a story. He said, what's the biggest change in your life since you came to Christ? He said, oh, stopped having those dreams. <laughs> Friends, if God wants to get hold of you, he'll get hold of you. You can run as far as you want. You can find yourself in a little Egyptian prison, but God's right there. <laughs> God can always bring you back home. And these guys have a dream and, and one has a dream that his baskets will be filled up and the crows will come and peck them all out. The other one has that his cup overflows and, and Joseph says well it's good news for you cupbearer you're going to get restored back to your place and, and it's, good, it's bad news for you baker because uh, you're going to get your head cut off. Oops. Uh, so next time. Don't, see what I mean? When you have a dream keep it to yourself. But what he says to the cupbearer is this. He says, when you are restored, can you imagine the excitement and the anticipation rising in the heart of Joseph now? He's my chance. This guy serves Pharaoh himself. Surely he will tell Pharaoh everything that's going. No. He says to the cupbearer, he says, you know, when you are restored, uh, don't forget me. Can you just make a mention of me to Pharaoh? I'm not supposed to be here. You can almost hear the echoes of God. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. So the cupbearer is restored. And if we read the first verse of chapter 41, it says this, after two whole years. What? Joseph's been a good little boy. Surely he deserves everything to go right in his life, doesn't he? I don't find that anywhere in the Bible, you know. Nowhere in the Bible have I found that if you do the right thing and if you give your heart to Jesus, that everything's just going to be rosy. I haven't found that anywhere. And if that's the case, the the apostles want their money back. They want a refund. Hang on a second. That's not how it worked for us. And what I find in these words after two whole years is, has anybody ever noticed that God's timing is not our timing? In fact, by the time, from the time we met this little Hebrew boy who was 17 years of age, we've now, it's now 13 years have transpired since he was put into a pit. He's about to become the Prime Minister of Egypt, but 13 years have taken place. 13 years to put together a jigsaw puzzle. Here's something I've noticed about timing and God. I've noticed that we measure time according to hours, minutes and seconds, but God measures time according to devotion, dependence and surrender. God is not sitting back looking at his watch. God is sitting back looking at your heart. 
And what's going on in Joseph's life, that's, that's, that's a sermon for another time. Same with Job. Everybody thinks Job was enormously hard done by, and he was. He suffered immensely. But there was a purpose. The last chapter reveals it. You know, Job says, up until now, after everything that I've gone through, up until now, I had heard of you, O God, with the hearing of my ears. But he says, now my eye sees you. Something that, There was a transaction in the heart of Job. Something had transacted inside of him. God wasn't some distant force that he had heard about anymore. God wasn't a system anymore for Job. Yes, he had suffered immensely, but something had taken place in his heart. And, and Joseph has suffered immensely. And there's people sitting here today and you need to hear that our timing is not God's timing. And I know you want to hear something else. <laughs> I, 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 know, I know all of us want patience and we want it right now, God. But it just, it, it doesn't always work like that. That's why when the psalmist says, I will wait upon the Lord, waiting is actually a verb. You go about your life trusting that God's got everything in control. So after two whole years, something happens for Joseph. It just so happens that Pharaoh has, Pharaoh has a couple of dreams. And Pharaoh has a dream about some cows and seven years and all this other stuff. You can read about his weird and wonderful dreams, but he, they trouble him immensely. And all of a sudden, it clicks with the cupbearer. He goes, oh, hang on a second. That's right. I was supposed to remember that little Hebrew boy. And he says, well, I know this guy. And he's down in jail. And he can interpret dreams. I've never met anybody like him. I'm paraphrasing now. If you find that in your Bible, it will be a miracle. But, but he says, I know this little Hebrew boy. He can help you out. And Pharaoh says, go down and give that boy a bath and bring him back up here to me. And <clears throat> Joseph comes up to Pharaoh and he interprets the dreams. He says, well, he says, this is how it's going to go. You're going to have seven really good years, but then you're going to have seven uh, years of great hardship. And for those that get up early enough in the morning to see the sun peeking up over the horizon, the sun is rising for Joseph right now. He's going to begin to see what's going on. Uh, uh, All this time it's been about this. Talk about God's timing. It's interesting. We, we make decisions. We talked about this the other night, about Q and Star Trek, and I got lost when you said Jean-Luc Picard or whatever his name was. But, but the fact of the matter is we get worried about our decisions. We get worried about the threads in our lives. And, and, and my, Here's some pastoral advice. If you're sitting teetering on the edge of what you should do, make a decision. Because we're going to see with Joseph that when God is in control, He's always moving us towards a single point. Joseph has always been moving to the point where he would stand before Pharaoh and give him this advice. But imagine for a moment that God comes to Joseph at the age of 17 and says, "Uh, listen, I need you to go to Egypt and uh, about 13 years from now, I need you to interpret a dream for Pharaoh. How many people know that Joseph would be going, what the, what are you talking about? Spending too much time with the sheep. But it just so happens that Pharaoh does have a dream and it just so happens that they couldn't find any more... Man, the testimony of Pharaoh is this. Can we find a man like this that has the spirit of God in him? Pharaoh, the king of the most powerful empire of that time, says, I haven't found anybody like this guy. 
You've interpreted my dreams and he elevates him. Nobody has, the only person that has any greater power in Egypt now than Joseph is Pharaoh. He is the prime, you, you are in charge, champ. You make this happen. And after all of those just so happens, we begin to read that there's a terrible famine that hits the whole land. And we begin to read that Jacob and Israel at that time, the the nation has grown a little bit. But they've run out of food. And God appears to Jacob and says, appears to him in a dream. And he says to Jacob, he says, don't be afraid to go to Egypt and look for some food. And so Jacob packs up the rest of his sons and says, go to Egypt and get us some food. And, and can you see the sun peeking over the horizon now? You know what, Joseph? <laughs> if, if you weren't in Egypt, Joseph, uh, the, the fact of the matter is that Israel would starve and we wouldn't have any covenant with God. We wouldn't have anything. And the sun has risen for Joseph and it's clicked. He's got it. And he, we know the story how he meets his brothers and he tests his brothers and, and it's a bit of a process of sending them back home and coming back again to see whether they would sell Benjamin. He wants to see if there's been a change in their heart. Has something transacted? Will you give up Benjamin like you did me? And, and of course, it's a long story of how that doesn't happen. But all of a sudden, Joseph goes, hang on a second. This whole thing is not about you guys. And this whole thing is actually not even about me. And Joseph says, it's all about God. Because Joseph says, God sent me before you. That's the testimony to his brothers. In chapter 45, verses 4, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. This is when they are reunited and and Joseph reveals himself. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Don't, don't Don't be distressed about the fact that you sold me here. Why? Because God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph gets it. And when we get it, we'll stop blaming everybody else. When, when we get it, when we get who it is that's in control, when we hand our lives over to the authority of the universe, we will get it too. And we will realise we have to stop blaming everybody else and we have to stop blaming everything else and realise that we need to do business with him. Joseph gets it. He says, you guys are cool. If I'm going to take this up with anybody, I'll take it up with God and good luck with those who decide they want to do that. Joseph says, God sent me before you. It's not you that sent me here. They're profound words. That's deeply profound. For Joseph to have that kind of insight and say, you didn't send me here. Come with me to chapter 50. As I bring this to a close... Joseph is, Joseph's father has died. And if you're here tonight, I want to talk about a verse that comes out of the lips of Jacob as well. Jacob says, as he's praying over the sons of Joseph, he says, to the God who has been the shepherd all my long days. What a profound, profound testimony. Read the life of Jacob. That guy was messed up as well. We're not messed up because we've got it all together, but these guys were messed up. And Jacob dies and his brother's 
His brothers need to run to the toilet because they're a little bit worried now. Well, we're in Egypt. Dad's dead. There's nothing stopping this guy having retribution on us. And I love what Joseph says here. He says, am I in the place of God? Verse 18, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Am I in the place to get retribution on you? Am I in the place to sit in judgment? Am I God? Am I in control, says Joseph? And the answer to that question is no. There's a beautiful, beautiful picture of forgiveness here. It's a beautiful picture of just letting go of any bitterness or revenge and just saying, you know what, I'm not in the place of God. People have hurt me, yes. People have treated me unjustly, yes. If you're sitting in this room today and nobody has hurt you and nobody has treated you unjustly, then you are very, very rare. And Joseph says, you know what? I'm not in the place of God. I'm going to let all of that go. And he finishes with, I think, one of the most profound sentences in the Old Testament. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. When, when you put me in the pit, you wanted to kill me. When you sold me to Egypt, you wanted to forget about me. When, when, I, when I was put in jail for all those long years, when the, when the cupbearer forgot me, the goose, all of those guys, when all of that happened to me, you meant it for my evil. But isn't it wonderful how God is able to weave those threads? <laughs> Just no wonder, no wonder Jesus said when he refers to his people that we are sheep. Why? You get a group of sheep together. You get a group of 15, 20 sheep together and you try to push them in the one direction and see how you go. You're going to get two of them going this way. You're going to get two of them going that way. And what does God do? No matter the decisions you make, I'm going to keep you on the path. You're going to wander off, but I've got a stick. And Sometimes God needs a piece of 4 by 2 though, doesn't he? I call it the 4 by 2 theory where God's got a staff and he taps us. He says, oi. You get about three chances, I think. The second time he taps you again. The third time he gets a piece of 4 by 2 and smacks you around the chops. And how many of us have had points in our lives where God's had to smack us around the chops? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The testimony of Joseph is this. My life is littered with the fingerprints of God. I had the fingerprints of God on me when I was at the bottom of the pit. I had the fingerprints of God on me when I was in Egypt. I had the fingerprints of God on me when I was in jail. I now have the fingerprints of God on me while I am sitting in the position I am in Egypt. Why? Because if God doesn't gift me, I can't do what I'm doing as the Prime Minister of Egypt anyway. I've got the fingerprints of God all over me. And I want to talk to you as I bring this to a close. I want, to, I want to rewind from where we are today, 2,000 years from now. I want to talk to you about another innocent man that was a long way from home. It's the God-man. And interestingly enough, the God-man would be sold for the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. Judas sold the God-man for 30 pieces of silver. And another innocent man was separated from the father that he loved the most. Another innocent man was horribly and unjustly afflicted. 
Another innocent man was hanging on a cross, brutally beaten, horribly mistreated, and as all the movies have so far missed, hanging there naked. You weren't crucified with any clothes on. He's hanging naked, he's bleeding, he's mocked, he's rejected by the people that he came to save. He's hanging upon the cross with his blood dripping from the beams of the cross. And you know what? He's right where God wanted him. Three days later, that God man would rise miraculously and supernaturally from the dead. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Son of God. Jesus Christ of Nazareth has been risen and is alive today. But there was a point in history when Jesus Christ of Nazareth was far from his Father, separated from the God of all creation, whom he loved the most. He was horribly afflicted, brutally beaten, and he was there to preserve life. He was there to preserve our life. And as I was sharing with Steve this morning, Jesus is the saviour of the world, yes. Jesus is the son of God, yes. There's a lot of people that are happy to have Jesus on the cross. There's a lot of people that even say, I've had a discussion with a gentleman out here that says, you know what, in the first century, they were that bad, they needed Jesus. And after a couple of minutes conversation, he began to realise that we need Jesus just as much now. And Jesus has to go from being a saviour to being your saviour. Jesus has to go from being the Lord to being your Lord. Each and every one of us have the fingerprints of God on our lives. And I want to ask you, what will you do to the one that was sent to preserve your life? How will you respond to him? Let's pray. Jesus, you are magnificent. And I gladly and happily stand behind this pulpit this morning and I confess, Jesus, you are my saviour. I happily and rejoicingly confess, Jesus, you are my Lord. I thank you, Jesus, that you endured all of that for me. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to the fingerprints that you have left and I pray that you would open our eyes to the trace evidence that you have left in our lives and in our hearts, all bringing us back to yourself. Lord, open our eyes, I pray, in your wonderful, glorious and matchless name. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website, at therock.org.au You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.